The preaching of God's Word is in the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 2, there at verse 14. We've read the whole of this chapter already. We take up this verse which sets before us a furthering of Christ's appeal to His bride. So we read Christ's words, O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. All the privileges that man can receive in this life and even imagine, there is none greater than the enjoyment of Christ's love. There's nothing that you can set with all of your imagining, all of your experience, that can actually equal the privilege of enjoying Christ. For there's no one in this world, multiplied together, added with others, and so on, who can equal the dignity and the perfection of His person, He being the eternal Son of God. None can equal His righteousness, so faithful and just in all of His ways. None can equal His mercy. None can equal His grace. None can equal His love. None so faithful as Christ. None so sincere as Christ. None so loving as Christ. And though this is not the chief motive, yet it would be a dishonor to Christ did we not acknowledge that none so rich in blessings for His beloved as Christ is for His bride. There is no billionaire in this world who is able to equal the gifts and graces that Christ freely bestows upon His people. There is none in this world that is like unto Christ. And there is none whose blessings would ever come near the blessings of Christ. This is one reason, doubtlessly, that this book is called the Song of Songs. And so you'll notice that it's the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so it's that song which is superior to all songs. And this, of course, because it delightfully sets forth Christ and His bride and the communion and delight that both He has for her and she has for Him. We need not labor the point as we've done on other occasions. Suffice it to say, though, a majority view today would make this nothing other than uh, marital love between Solomon and one of his many brides. And we can see through that so quickly because the eyes of this man, as presented, is singular to one. Moreover, there are things of Solomon that do not match what is set forth of this beloved. For instance, the mere fact that he's a shepherd. Solomon never was a shepherd. And many other things that are said of this one which could not be said of Solomon. And so we take the scriptural testimony that this is of that altogether lovely one who as Psalm 45 tells us is fairest of all men 
even Jesus Christ. Notice particularly the text, verse 14, comes in a section of chapter 2 in this book wherein Christ is appealing to His bride to draw near to Him. And so you see it in verse 8, the voice of my beloved, something that we can't see in the English but is evident in the Hebrew. Hebrew has the ability to use gender in words. And so the voice of my beloved Beloved is masculine, so it's speaking of uh, the husband. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains. And so he's speaking, testifying, and he's drawing near. And it likens him unto unto a a very sure-footed deer. And then his words, verse 10, which he's speaking, the voice of my beloved, is this. Rise up. My love, my love is feminine. He's speaking to his bride. Rise up, my love, my fair one, come away. Not go away, but come away. Come with me. And then he sets forth this beautiful scene of springtime when things are budding and fruit is being born. A season of plenty and enjoyment. A season of enjoyment them. But then verse 14 comes and it is a further appeal by a loving plea. He says, O my dove, dove is feminine, that art in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. So it's expressing an assured appeal that he really wants her. He really desires her. He knows her. He knows all about her. And yet what's striking, of course, is in spite of verses 8 through 13, where there is a clear, a firm, a very open and manifest testimony of his desire for her, she's like a dove, skittish and afraid, hidden, hiding, worried, Brethren, is it not the case with us many times? Oh, we can think to times when we thought Christian experience was something easy. Certainly it's simple. But we've made it simplistic. And we've made it like, well, since we're saved, we're all of grace. We're all of purity. But really, we know something of the remnant of sin. And it rises up and it strikes us and burdens us. And we hear Christ's appeal And we become worried. We know something of our own ugliness, our own sin remaining. We know our own weakness. And we look comparatively to other Christians and we say, what am I to them? Look how many gifts and graces. Look how many things done to the glory of Christ. Look how self-denying. Look how spiritually beautiful. And when I look in the mirror, I see the spots and wrinkles of doubts and unbelief, selfishness, pride, and of vanity. So we hear Christ. And brethren, what you hear is something that is echoing from Eden. Do you remember God draws near to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? Very similar to what's expressed in verses 8 to 13. And Adam and Eve hide themselves, they make for themselves sown fig leaves, insufficient for their problem. And it's exposed that they've sinned. 
You see, brethren, the reason we hide and hesitate is not actually because we have high thoughts of Christ. It's because we're conscious of our sins. This sinful hesitation can masquerade itself as humility, but it's not humility. It's actually sinful doubting. And what Christ comes to do unto us is to acknowledge that there's something of weakness in us. And yet He exposes not just the weakness, but He casts His focus upon His sincere desire in spite of our weaknesses that He truly, earnestly desires our fellowship. That's what we see in the text. And so He appeals most lovingly, O my dove that is hidden, let me see Thy countenance. No longer stay in the shadows. Come out. Let me hear Your voice. No longer lay silent. Speak. Sing. Why? Not so I can mock Your weakness or ridicule Your failures, but because sweet is Thy voice and Thy countenance is comely. Christ takes delight in His bride whom He loves. This is confirmed in so many places throughout Scripture. You can think generally His first coming, His incarnation, was a coming in love to redeem His bride. And then as He testifies that He must go and prepare a place, and yet He and the Father will come again, not just in the second coming, but by the Spirit and abide with His people. He loves to be with His people. He's appointed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this is a means of communing with His people. And He's promised to come again, all of which testify so clearly that He sincerely desires to enjoy the fellowship of His people. We look particularly in preparation for the Lord's Supper at three things. Firstly, regarding this appeal that He makes to His bride, looking at the object of his appeal. To whom does he appeal? Secondly, we consider the desire of his appeal. What is it that he truly wants? And thirdly, the sincerity of this appeal. And so we look at these three things from verse 14, firstly considering the object of Christ's appeal. To whom does he make this appeal? Well, we've seen already he's appealing to his bride, my dove. Dove is feminine. And it, in context, is so clear. He said in verse 13, here's the voice, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And now he addresses his beloved people through this imagery of dove. But let's not go too far into that just yet. Notice how it holds forth his tenderness and that he appeals to a people that he delights in. He addresses her, whom he just called my love, as my dove. And notice the simplicity of this single word, my. It appears almost in rapid succession from verse 13 to 14. My love, my fair one, my dove. And so it testifies that she is His. This is, of course, a simple truth, but it is profound that the bride, with whatever her 
blackness is, having been exposed to the sun, as she says, whatever her faltering is, as chapter 5 will show, as she stumbles at his appeal, whatever her weaknesses are, as we even see them here. Yet Christ has no hesitation to say, you're mine. He delights in his people, for they are his. This is something that needs almost zero rational explanation. A mother loves her children for the simple fact that they're hers. It doesn't mean that the children are the most beautiful. It doesn't mean the the children are the most intelligent. It doesn't mean the children are the most striking and handsome and lovely and thoughtful. In fact, though the world has made that what is the thought, it's actually quite the opposite. A mother can see that their child perhaps is not as handsome as another or as beautiful as another or as thoughtful as another. But the Lord has so knit the heart of the mother to the child that that child being hers is beloved. It's a real love. It's not manufactured and conditioned upon outward things. It is established by the fact of begetting and by relationship. And this is true as well of Christ's love to His own. It's not manufactured. It's not settled upon circumstantial things. It's established rather by the gracious relationship that is established in the counsels of eternity. So you think of John 17. And Christ opens, as it were, a gateway into heaven. And He's allowing us to see this uh, uh, relationship between the Father and the Son. And He prays to the Father and He says of His people, Thine they were, but Thou gavest them Me. They're Mine. And so what did He do? He gave Himself for them. He loved them. He died for them. This relationship is a relationship that cannot be undone. She is His. Even with her faltering. Even with her quivering. Even with her weakness. Even with her hesitation. Even with her sins. She is called by Christ, My Dove. And she is His beautiful bride. Thus, a dove is a universal emblem of Peace and simplicity and beauty, purity. The Scriptures use this image quite regularly. So you think of, for instance, when Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, be harmless as doves. And so it is that we are to be those who have no guile, no you know, hidden and secondary motive. But we're to be harmless and singular in our attention. And this is, of course, a beauty unto the Lord. You can see something of this as well, even though the church will face affliction in Psalm 68, where it speaks of the church and her beauty likened unto a dove. So you have it, Psalm 68, and at verse 13, though you have lain among the pots, so though you have been among that which would make you filthy, you've been in difficulty and disarray, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. 
here Christ testifies of the church as his dove. Such is Christ's view of his people. He views them as his. Now, this is important for you and for me. As we are in Christ by faith, we need to remember that whatever else we are, whatever else we struggle with, whatever else our circumstances are, we are Christ's. And this is no little encouragement. So the psalmist uses this blessed expression so simply, I am thine, save me. We have the simplicity of it that follows after in verse 16, this theme that will be repeated again and again. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Brethren, we need to labor throughout this section, this verse in particular, to force ourselves to see that this is Christ's word to us. He calls us his, his dove, his pure one, his blessed one, his beautiful one. And he appeals to us as his. It's true. By nature in Adam, we were estranged from God. And we turned each one of us unto his own way. But we must not deny that God in His grace has set His love upon us and has given us to Christ so that we now are His. Whatever else we are, we are His. And we need to hear His voice. So as soon as we understand that, we'll become more understanding and receiving of the great appeal itself. So parents know this in one way as they speak to their children. And they say, this is how it's going to be. You're not going to do this. You're going to do that. And the child might come and say, well, you know, so-and-so gets to do this. And then the parent says, as every parent does, I'm not so-and-so's parent. I'm yours. You're my child. Well, it calls for audience. It calls for focus. It calls for attention. And when Christ appeals to us as His, it calls for our attention. What is Christ going to say to us? Because we are His. Now, we would count it a great privilege if He simply said, O oh, my servant, O oh, my slave. That would be a privilege. We need to understand that. If He put us in the lowest position among men and said, You're mine, it would be an infinitely great privilege to us. But He calls us His dove. And so there is a relationship of mercy and grace and delight. And he's saying, you're mine. And this, as it were, is to arrest our attention. Before moving on, notice the object of his appeal is not just to his beloved people, but to his beloved people as trembling. They're in the clefts of the rock. And they're in the hidden places of the stairs. So doves are notorious for their seeking shelter. All of us have walked in parks and other places, and so as soon as you come upon doves in this nation or in any nation, they flutter away, skittish and fearful. A loud noise can make them flee. And certainly physical presence can do the same. And here, it's not just a tender appeal, but it's also an appeal acknowledging weakness. 
because she who is beloved by him is withdrawn. She who is clearly testified to that he desires her fellowship is yet hesitant. We need to acknowledge that there's a reason for this. In spite of his appeal, she hides. And this is for no other reason than that there is sin in her. When Peter saw the display of Christ's divine glory, it's understandable that he would say, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. When Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord walking in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day, it's understandable why they would flee away and hide. Because they were conscious of their sin without a mediator. When Christ appears in glory, it's understandable why people fall on their faces. John, even the apostle, as one dead. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, it's understandable why he cries out, Woe is me, I'm undone. But we ought to remember that it is Christ who makes His appeal, our Mediator and Savior who comes. And so to think of Christ the Savior calling us not to judgment but to fellowship and that we should tremble and hesitate still is not humility. It's unbelief masquerading as humility. And yet notice the tenderness of Christ. And instead of berating Though exposing, as we'll see, he appeals with the sincerity of his desire to enjoy your fellowship. Brethren, before passing on, it may be that you've come in some degree trembling and hesitant. And as you see the word of Christ, note that he addresses you as his dove. And it is he who desires you. Notice secondly then, the desire of his appeal. He says, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. The countenance is most particularly the face. So the psalmist will say unto the Lord, turn unto me thy countenance and shine upon me. And so it is, Christ is saying, don't just sort of show me your shoulder, show me your back, but turn unto me your face and What is it that we hide when we're embarrassed? It's our eyes and our faces. We can hardly make eye contact with the one that we're embarrassed before. And perhaps we've shamed them. Perhaps we've done something wrong to them. A child to a parent. And our hands and our bodies are all displaying the same and we're drooping. But the thing which most clearly testifies is our faces drop and our eyes avert themselves from making contact with the one with whom we have to do. Christ says, let me see thy countenance. I don't ask you to come so that you can hesitate and drop before me with shame. And is there not good reason for that? Because He has taken our shame unto Himself. He was made shame in being made sin. He's taken away all of the guilt and all of that judgment. And in doing so, He's saying, I desire to see your beauty. It's natural for us to desire to look upon beautiful things. 
We may differ in precisely what it is that we find strikingly beautiful. We go to a museum perhaps, and one piece of art strikes us more fully than another. And yet so soon as something hits us as beautiful, it's something we like to look upon. We delight in it. And what's striking for us is, this is what Christ is saying about his bride. I desire to see you. I want to look upon you. And it's not in order to embarrass us. It's not in order to ridicule us. As we'll see, he says, thy countenance is comely. It's beautiful. I love this. Now, this is not the objectifying of some strange sexuality embedded in the Song of Solomon as the world, for some reason, wishes to make it. But the song is the song of songs of the lovely and loving love of Christ to His bride. And what we have here can be understood by outward love, where a husband finds his bride beautiful, he rightly longs to look upon her. And when a wife finds her husband attractive, she rightly longs to look upon him. And what's difficult for us is to come to terms with, this is Christ's perspective to us in Him. He desires and delights to look upon us, to see us, and to delight in us. How is it that He could do so? Because instantly is it not the case that rising up within our thoughts are all of the sins that we've committed? It's not the case because you've never thought of all the sins you've committed. You've never seen all the depravity in your heart. You've never seen all the corruption. You've gotten a hint of it. You've heard a whisper of it. It's overwhelmed you. But dear brethren, you've never seen the fullness of your sins. Christ has. Christ does. And yet it's Christ who sincerely says, I find you beautiful. And I want to enjoy your fellowship. Not virtually, not by way of distance, but personally and intimately. How is that so? Well, let's remember who this is that's speaking We'll see the connection as we read in Ephesians chapter 5. How it is that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word that He might present it to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ has beautified His bride. Now in this life, of course, it's not perfected yet. There's yet to be that perfection spiritually at death when the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness. And then at the resurrection when their souls perfected in holiness and their bodies glorified or reunited. And there is the fullness of the consummation and the beatific vision of the Lord Jesus Christ being an express, bodily, glorified presence ever to enjoy Him. And though that the greatest enjoyment is yet to come, and that the greatest of beauty is yet to be experienced, yet Christ's death has already begun the work of beautifying 
his bride. And this beauty is real and true and objective. What kind of heart is it that God delights in? The heart that trembles at his word. Brethren, is it not the case that your heart is often trembled at his word? That your heart has seen sins identified and you've seen your sins and your heart has trembled at that? That's something of God's grace. And it's there because of Christ's purchase. And it's truly beautiful unto Christ. Is it not He that stores up our tears in His vial? How many times have we shed our tears in repentance? How many times have we shed our tears in joy over the love of Christ? Is it not He which delights in our singing of His praise? And is it not the case that you and I as believers love to sing Christ's praise? Why is that? It's because Christ died gave Himself for us, and has begun the beautifying work within and through us. We're beautiful to Him by His sovereign grace and by the fruit of His redemption. And though we can claim none of it as being the authors of it ourselves, yet it's truly ours by way of gift. He really has purchased it for us and given it to us. So that when we love Christ, we really do love Christ. When we tremble at His Word, it's really we who are trembling at His Word by His grace, because of His grace, and yet His grace working within us to will and to do of all of His good pleasure is really causing us to do that which is beautiful in His sight, to will and to do of His good pleasure. And Christ delights in that. He delights to see His people. He delights to see the fruit of His grace. He testifies of this in Isaiah 53, that He shall see of the travail of His soul and be satisfied. He will not find it lacking. You hear of these masterpieces created by true and renowned artists And the artists look at it and they see all the defects. And they can't find the same delight that a spectator has in looking upon it. The artist knows all of the imperfections, every false stroke, every imperfect contrast, and all of those things that we pass by. Brethren, it's not as if Christ is just a spectator and He doesn't know the faults that presently are. But it's that Christ is the perfect artist who is at work still in His people, shaping the beauty until the last day. And every removal of some imperfection of sin in us is exposing the beauty that He's placing within us. And He knows the perfection of that grace which will be seen before all of the world on the last day. So while it's true that in our experience the sight of heaven We are not yet perfected in personal holiness. Yet it's also true that the perfection of beauty which will be ours is already begun. And Christ delights to see it, to look upon it, and to delight in it. He desires her beauty, which is a beauty He's given to her. He desires her beautiful voice, 
So he says, let me see thy countenance. But he doesn't want her to be without speech. Silent. He says, let me hear thy voice. The voice, as is obvious to us, is that by which we make known our desires. And so spiritually, of course, we pray, we offer up our desires unto the Lord, we praise, and so we sing uh, from a heart filled of grace, pouring them out through the Word of Christ. And Christ is saying, those desires that you have are sweet, and I want to hear them. Have you ever felt your prayers to be little and small? Insignificant, perhaps, stuttering, stumbling, all of which is true, but Christ perceives beauty in them because they come from a heart renewed, made gracious, and indeed being sanctified by His work. Moreover, He sees the intentions of grace in us, and He perfects that through His mediation, a beautiful image in the book of Revelation as our prayers are offered up into His censer, and His censer, as it were, perfects them in the presence of God. He desires to hear our voice. They say it this way, when you don't pray, you disobey. That's true. But you also disappoint. For Christ would hear your voice. Christ desires to hear your voice. Christ delights in hearing your voice. Your prayers and your praise are sweet to Him. They're desired by Him. He longs for them. You say, how can that be? Who here would say that someone in their family is perfect? Surely if you would, you're deceived. But however so imperfect your family may be, the phone rings and that loved one is on the other end you delight in hearing their voice. Why is that? It's because you love the one whose voice it is. Christ loves hearing your voice. He loves receiving your prayers. He loves receiving your praise. Not just because they're objectively right, conformed to His will, but because He loves the one who's praying, praising. He has a sincere love set upon us and so He desires to hear us. He desires to hear your needs. He desires to hear your delights. And He calls for you to make it known. Brethren, this desire of His appeal is fundamentally one of desiring fellowship with us. Of course, we can understand objectively why we should desire His fellowship. What's hard for us to understand is why should He ever desire our fellowship? And if we looked, of course, at the measurement of strict merit, there would be no cause. Because none of us have ever done or could ever do that which would merit the fellowship of Christ. And yet Christ sincerely desires our fellowship because of gracious love to us. And notice finally, thirdly, the sincerity of his appeal. We might think that he's just saying the right thing. You know, we think of some people who have callings that make it, in one sense, necessary that they invest in us. So parents have to 
care for their children, at least they're supposed to. Pastors have to visit their people, at least they're supposed to. Husbands have to support their wives, at least they're supposed to. But there's a strange thing that happens with the half to do something and our own receiving of it. We, some reason, make the having to do something a duty to empty that then of any desire. As if a pastor visiting someone in the church is merely duty. Or as if a husband listening to a wife is merely duty. Is it duty? Of course it's duty. But show me in the Scriptures where duty and delight is divorced. I can show you in the world where that is. I can show you delights being divorced of duty and sinfully going about roving in this world after illicit things. I can show you where duty is divorced from delight and duty is done without any love. But I can show you in His Word that the two are wed together among His people imperfectly and in Christ perfectly. It's true He has a duty. It's His charge. The Father has given Him. And yet, if you open to John 17, you don't see this sort of transaction whereby Christ is saying, I've done my duty, that's it. But rather, He speaks of the duty given Him and His desire that the love which the Father has to the Son would be in them. And they in Him. And so on. There's an earnest desire for these things. And so it's not just Christ saying, you know, this is what I'm supposed to say. I'm supposed to want to see you. I'm supposed to want to hear you. And so I'm just going to call you to it. Notice how He says, Sweet is thy voice. Thy countenance is comely. One thing this exposes to us is we have doubts about this. Our voice? Is it not difficult for us to hear recordings of our own voices? We hear it and it strikes us as off. Off-putting. And then we think spiritually of our voice to the Lord. We pray and we truly pour out our souls and yet we look at the meager offering so riddled with imperfections and unbelief. At the end of it, we have to say, I do believe, help my unbelief. Cleanse me even of my prayers in their best, their sin. We look at our carriage in this life and we see many failures. We say, surely there are others who are beautiful to Christ, but how could I be? We have our doubts. But Christ would meet our doubts with His assurance. Sweet is thy voice. Your voice does that to me what sweetness does to your palate. It makes you want more. And I want more of your prayer. I want more of your praise. Thy countenance is comely. It's fitting. It's attractive. It's proportionate. We have these scientists of beauty who talk about how it is that proportion is one of the keys to beauty. That if something's disfigured, out of proportion, it makes it ugly, and so on. And this word comely has this notion of it's fitting and proportionate. It's beautiful. And we see the improportionate, the disproportionate parts of our souls. And yet Christ is seeing how He's forming in us more humility, forming in us 
more joy, forming in us more love, forming in us all these things. And he sees as well how each master stroke of his hand will have its way. And he says it truly is beautiful, pleasing, desiring, desirable to me. So what's he saying? I really desire you. Now, brethren, for a moment, just consider when we think about liberal theology and its undermining of the Word of God, calling into question, is this God's Word? That it's far more than just that issue that's at stake. Because if you undermine God's Word and you make it just man's Word and questionable at best and so on, traditional, historical, and all of those things, but not divine, you can see for a moment how the soul of the believer is left without the fullness of enjoying Christ. We're left with some sort of bare skeleton. We're without the warmth of life. But when we see this is God's Word, this is Christ's Word, that Christ is truly appealing to us as His beloved, as His love, as His uh, dove, and desires us, then instantly we're forced to reject all other things and say, this is what Christ wants from me. How do I know? Because it's His Word. His Word has told me it. How do I know? Because Christ has testified in and by His Word. Oh dear believer, this is the voice that you must hear. You must hear Christ's voice. You must hear His voice above your own voice. You must hear His voice above any other voice. His voice is the voice that the sheep hear and follow. Here the shepherd speaks and says, I desire you. What a reproof it is for us to give our beauty, our time, our love to other things. Here Christ stands earnestly appealing. It's as in the book of Proverbs, wisdom in the public place, in the square of the town, at the gates crying out. Here Christ with earnestness is saying, this is what I want. I want you. I want your affection. I want your beauty. I want your voice. I want all that you are. How is it then that we would give our time to anyone other than Jesus Christ? Does anyone love like Christ loves? Does anyone provide as Christ provides? Is anyone worthier than Christ is worthy? And it is Christ who comes and says, Your beauty I desire. What encouragement then to the trembling believer, to the comforted believer, that here Christ calls us and He desires us. We often think my desire for Him is weak. And we're right. But do you know what we can't say? We can never say, Christ's desire for me is weak. Our perception of it may weak, be weak. Our perception of it may be off. But so soon as we bring our attention to His Word, He with clarity testifies to us, 
that his desire for us is without any fault or weakness whatsoever. So to whose voice will you listen? Listen to your own? Or you listen to Christ's voice who says, I desire you. As we think of the Lord's table tomorrow and coming to the Lord's Supper, this is what we need to realize. Just as the Word says, this is my body broken for you, this do in remembrance of me, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, drink ye all of it in remembrance of me. So Christ is giving us the assurance that this is for us. And yet here, the Word of Christ comes and says, I desire you. And so there are multiple things going on. Christ is providing us Himself, and at the same time, He's saying, I want you to Myself. I want you. Do we not see it so simply in verse 16? My beloved is Mine, and I am His. That's the fruit of this. If we profit at all from this Word, it will bring us to the assured confidence of saying Christ is mine and I am His. And this will be the foundation for all true practical godliness, for all true holiness personally maturing in our lives, for all breaking off of worldliness and lusts of the world and all compromises in our hearts to be secured by the loving and sincere promise and word of Christ that we then would say, He is mine, and I am His. Well, may it be that we would come in the assurance of His Word tomorrow and receive of His desire to provide, but also to give to Him by His grace what He desires of us. That by His grace, the beauty that He has formed in us would be shown in faith and hope and love, and that our voices would be heard in prayer and praise, trusting Him that by His grace, through the redemption of His own blood, He finds us His own desire. Would you stand with me for prayer?